The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. There's not much in life you can understand without context. When it comes to the systematic destruction of our planet during the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, the context is this. For the first 300 years of human history, nature, as former late coach Pat Riley put it, They kicked our ass. Nature had us in a chokehold from the first cave to the first cafe with famine, disease, natural disasters, and the occasional haymaker of a plague, bubonic, choleric, or otherwise. Even today, nature is capable of unfathomable destruction. Hurricanes and earthquakes take a devastating toll, and diseases like cancer and COVID end lives and ruin our economies. But in many respects, the script has flipped. In the last 200 years, we industrialized, sterilized, and geneticized. We went nuclear. Nature spent so many millennia hurting us that it took a moment for us to realize that we could hurt it too. We were so focused on surviving nature that it never occurred to us to focus on nature's survival. A helpful parallel might be the way that my four-year-old cousin likes to charge me with his arms flailing like a little ball of hate. It's funny now, but if he's still doing that when he's 20, I have a problem. Nature was the invincible empire. Today it's at our mercy, and most of the time it receives little. The power dynamics shifted in the 19th and 20th centuries, and virtually no one noticed. This series is part about the people who did, the great conservationists like Teddy Roosevelt and Jimmy Carter, who campaigned for protection and preservation and changed the American landscape. It's also a reminder that America does good things too. Yes, we invented napalm, the 24-hour news cycle and subprime mortgages. We also invented the National Park and the conservationist J. Horace McFarland once noted, the National Parks are an American idea. It is one thing we have that has not been imported.
Anytime you mention this fact, someone inevitably brings up the example of Bong Kong Mountain, the 18th century Asian nature preserve, as proof that McFarlane was wrong. Founded in 1783, Bong Kong is a sacred mountain in northeastern Mongolia in the oldest legally protected natural area in the world. And the similarities with our national parks pretty much end right there. This mountain was protected by the order of the Qing Dynasty for royal and religious purposes. An eight-sided golden roof temple was erected on top of the mountain and permanently staffed by two monks. Twice a year, cows and sheep were sacrificed. American national parks are secular recreational areas for the public to enjoy. These areas are not set aside for temples. They're set aside for you and me, and for nature itself. Calling Bog Kong a national park is like saying I'm a professional groundskeeper because I mow my own yard. It's like saying the first person to ever pull a wagon is the true inventor of the automobile. Nobody is sacrificing cows in the midst of Old Faithful, and no president has more of a right to these parks than you do. Think about that. They belong to the people. They're public parks, not religious or royal parks. And that's sort of the point. As FDR once said, there is nothing so American as our national parks. The fundamental idea behind the parks is that the country belongs to the people. Bog Kong was intended for royal carriages. Our national parks are made for rusty beaters filled with middle-class families and kids asking, Are we there yet? No. 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 Today, most developed countries have a national park system of some kind, after the American model. We should all take a moment to celebrate that, mostly because of how rare it is for our government to get something right. We can add the National Park Service to a short list of things, like NASA, the interstate, and choosing sides during World War II, where we did get something great. So let's give credit where credit is due. Today, the NPS has expanded to include 63 different areas designated as national parks in 30 states and two territories. The majority of these are out west, as most of the eastern half of America has already been ransacked by industrialists by the time the first park, Yellowstone, was established in 1872. Today, more than three-quarters of America's 63 national parks are west of the Mississippi, and there are 17 in Alaska and California alone. The most recent of these is the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve in West Virginia. The most famous among them is arguably the first among them to have ever been protected by federal law, Yosemite, in California. On June 30, 1864, three years into the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signed the Yosemite Valley Grant Act, claiming the park for conservation. The first official park was Yellowstone, which I'll cover in the next episode. But this legislation by Lincoln was so important that the National Park website has said, quote, In fact, therefore, if not in name, Yosemite was the first national park. Although Congress never enforced the restrictions imposed on California's acceptance of the grant, at least not until 1905, when the state ceded the valley and the big trees back to the federal government, their presence indicates that Congress had acted with a national interest in mind. 
the consensus that national parks had to be permanent was also recognized as early as 1864. Although the park was trusted to the state of California, it was preserved on behalf of the United States from the office of the president by federal mandate. In order to learn more about Yosemite, I reached out to a friend of ours who worked as a national park ranger for more than 30 years. Jim Burnett has written two books on his time in the park, titled Hey Ranger, True Tales of Humor and Misadventure from America's National Parks and Hey Ranger 2, More True Tales. The title of the book, Hey Ranger, comes from three common expressions I found on the job. One was just, hey Ranger, hi, how you doing? Sometimes it's, hey Ranger, quick over here. And sometimes it's, oh, hey Ranger, really didn't expect to see you here. So that's the background in the introduction for where the title comes from. Because I think of our national parks as a kind of sacred space, I tend to think of the National Park Ranger as serving an almost priestly role. If places like Yosemite or the Grand Canyon are America's native temples, it's the job of the ranger to help people have meaningful, respectful encounters with the natural world. In my own experience, rangers have been jovial, patient people with a genuine love for the natural world. Jim checks all of those boxes. He's been featured on ESPN's radios, The Outdoor Show, National Public Radio's Talk of the Nation, as well as many other radio outlets, and in print media like the Saturday Evening Post. I'm grateful to have him here with us today. Having read his books and being aware of the many ways that trips can go wrong, I knew that staying informed and traveling responsibly would be at the front of his mind. You should be doing your research, he says right up to the moment you arrive at the park. Yes, that, that is absolutely correct. This year really is a really great example of that. And I, I stress that even though I say go to the park website, there's a lot of great stuff online. Although you just have to be careful. Don't ever rely on one source of information, especially if you're going to blogs and that kind of thing. But if you go to the park website, search for Yosemite National Park and find the one that says, nps.gov is part of the address you know you're on there. And the reason that's important is you're looking for on the homepage link for alerts, A-L-E-R-T-S. And that's just what it is. You know, heads up. And uh, there's a great example right now for Yosemite about why that's so important. During 2022, if you're going to visit Yosemite between May 20th and September 30th, during the business hours, say you've got to have a reservation or you can't get into the park. And that's not the way things were until just the last year or so. And so it would be tragic to think somebody had planned a big trip, loaded the family up in the van, drove across the country, got to the gate and say, where's your ticket? I hadn't got one. Well, sorry, sir. And so that's why I just really stress, be sure you know what the information is. You can, if you go to the park website, there's all the details about how that system works. And the reason finally the park was just driven to that was that you can only cram so many cars into Yosemite Valley and have a place to park them. And it just gotten where the area was just absolutely so overwhelmed that people were complaining that I didn't drive 2,000 miles to come here and sit in a traffic jam for four hours. And so they're making an effort to try to manage that. They have calculated how many cars you can park in Yosemite Valley. And so they're trying to stay pretty close to that in terms of how many people they're letting in on a given time. If you go to the park website, not only will you get that information, but it tells you here's how you get a permit. And it also gives you some options. 
for, there are exceptions. If you have a reservation for places to stay in the park, you don't have to have a permit. And you can be, there's a great regional system. It's Y-A-R-T-S, the Yosemite Area Regional Transportation System. They run high-quality buses from a number of places outside the park. And if you're on a YARPS bus, you don't have to have a reservation because the whole purpose of the reservation is to limit the number of vehicles in the park to what they can manage. So if you come in on a bus, it's not an issue. So the, that's an example of ways that you can work around that. Just book you a ticket on a YARPS bus far enough ahead so you can get in. There's ways if you're determined to do it. But the key is to know ahead of time. I asked about cell service in the park. I know I had issues, but I wasn't sure if that was just my carrier. That's a great question. And like a lot of parks, it's not. And the park makes a, a big point of saying, please don't rely on GPS and on the navigation app on your phone because it's not going to be reliable in the park. The old map or printed map is just an indispensable tool. And another thing that you can do is really handy. You can, ahead of time, if you go to the park website, you can find, for example, Yosemite, a thing called the Yosemite Guide. It's a great park brochure. They update it during the summertime, like every two, three weeks. So it tells you all the programs and hikes that are going on and gives you hints for the hiking trails and but it's also got in there a map of the free shuttle bus system that operates there in Yosemite Valley. You can pull it up and have it right on your phone. You got a map of the valley right there on your phone. So I say the paper map's great, but you carry around your back pocket all day. It gets all crumpled up and you can't read it. So stick it on your phone or your tablet. You got that stuff out of hand. And if you've got it downloaded and saved on your phone, or saved on your tablet, you don't have to worry about whether or not you've got a, a cell signal or a GPS signal. Another thing that's happening this year, or they keep doing the best they can at the park to try to deal with this great flood of traffic. And they're trying a different traffic pattern in Yosemite Valley at times during the summer where the flow won't be the way it was last winter. And so you got your GPS and it's going to tell you to get from point A to point B. You get there, you can't get there this year because the traffic flow is different on the road. So that's why, yeah, go back, get a good information, stop by the visitor center, grab a map, grab the Yosemite guide, and that'll save you a lot of wasted time and frustration. The other comment about make, we found it in our last trip there, we went in the spring, went in April, and it was fantastic because it was busy, but it wasn't jammed. But we even if it was busy enough, we found we we stayed outside the park the first two nights. My tip is, as soon as you get into Yosemite Valley, find your parking place and put your car there and don't move it again until you're ready to leave and go back out in the evening. They've got this great free shuttle bus system. But if you start moving your car around, trying to save yourself walking the two blocks to get someplace, you'll waste your day driving around trying to find a parking place. So take advantage of that shuttle system. That's why it's there. There's a playful nickname I've heard rangers use for the areas and parks without cell service. I asked Jim to explain it. If you look at your at the screen on your phone and you've got the little symbol at the top that tells you how strong your signal is, somebody say, oh, I got five bars, four bars, I'm good. Well, there's places I know you'll see in those spots, we call them the prohibition zone, no bars. And so that means that you're out of luck and don't rely on it. That just kind of became a fun buzzword we come up with to, to deal with the lack of a signal. So the prohibition zone. And there is one other thing that, in fact, I have just recently started looking at. There is a, a free National Park Service app. It's actually been out now for about a year and a half, and it's still being developed, but it's getting better and better every day. You can get it for iOS or for Android. Get in the Play Store or the Apple Store. 
you can pull up a lot of the information from park websites right on the app. If you want, you can download that information and save it on your phone. You're not required to, but you can. So again, if, for example, I'm going to Yosemite. I want to have that stuff handy. Just dump it onto your phone, your tablet. You don't have a cell signal, doesn't matter. You got that close to the hand. So I've just started kind of looking at that myself, but it's a, it's one tool of many that you can use that might just help make your trip a little bit easier. If you look at the app or you look at the Yosemite Guide where there's all kinds of suggestions and ideas and new travel sites, I won't begin to try to presume to tell people where's the best places to go or see or do in Yosemite. Certainly, there's a lot of places other than the valley. I hope if you're there during the summertime, you get up and see some of the high country, for example. We did have a, a few spots that we particularly enjoyed. And if somebody's going for the first time, maybe it would be uh, useful for them. One, one other tip I have would be that if you're not staying in the park, get there as early as you can in the morning before it starts to really get crowded. There in the valley itself, most of the major development, the campgrounds and lodges and stuff are on the east end the valley and the west end, it mainly just has this wonderful, gorgeous, big meadow with the Mercedes River running through the middle of it. And the road just makes a kind of loop around the outside. And if you just, there's all kinds of networks of trails through that, that meadow. And if you just walk out there, everybody has seen these screensavers and calendar photos and postcards with these magnificent photos of Yosemite. And that's where some of them are taken from. A place called the Swinging Bridge. And Sentinel Bridge, Capitan Meadow were three kind of landmarks there in that part of the valley. If you take the free shuttle, there's stops near all those places. You can get off and just have some magnificent views. Just soak in that scenery if you're a photographer. We got a couple hanging on the wall right now. We took our last trip. It's just a great spot to do it. But again, do it if you can't do it in the morning or late in the afternoon when it's not so crowded. If you have a chance, not everybody can afford to stay in the park, and it's hard to get a reservation. We were lucky we got one night there, and the advantage of that is we got up early, had breakfast, got out on a couple of the trails, and we had it almost ourselves because we were there close, and we didn't have to waste that hour or two hours getting into the park from outside. So at least an option, at least investigate if it works for you. It, it was The one night we were there was a really big bonus for us. The only thing I didn't love about Yosemite was the traffic. I'm definitely using the shuttle the next time. It sounds like it would take away the stress of driving and parking, which might be even more of a challenge. I especially love the fact that you don't have to worry about booking special intervals on the shuttle throughout the day as it runs on a loop. It's hop on, hop off, and the intervals that they run depends upon the peak season, but we never waited more than, and they don't run all night. I don't remember the schedule, but it's like, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. or whatever. It's really a long schedule. And they during the main valley loop, they ran like every 10 minutes. They're a city bus size bus, but they're run frequently. So, I mean, it's, you might have to wait for a second bus sometime if it's really crowded, but they're very convenient. And there are, there's two different loops. One of them makes the whole kind of a figure eight through the entire valley, through all the campgrounds. And the other one makes only just kind of the western part where so it keeps the loop from being so long. But it takes you to trailheads and to picnic areas and to the visitor center and the lodges and everything. So it's a great way to get around. It's been running for a lot of years, and I think they've pretty well got the bugs worked out of that system. It seems to it seems to go pretty well. Yeah. And I mentioned trailheads that you can get to either by the shuttle or just walking if you're staying there. A great hike is a place called Mirror Lake. 
And it's about a two-mile round trip, but it's easy. It's a paved trail most of the way. If you're there in the spring or early summer, you have this magnificent reflection of some of the big cliffs in this lake that looks like a mirror. Now, kind of the joke is that if you, it's a very shallow lake. And if you go there late in the summer, the locals refer to it as mirror meadow because basically the water all dries up. You, if you go in there and always try to take a picture reflection, you're going to miss out. But it's a great hike either way. But that's a great one to take, especially in the spring. And the other one, probably one of the more popular trails in the whole park for lower Yosemite fall. But it's an absolutely fantastic spot to go. We were there again in April and 8 o'clock in the morning, and we saw maybe a dozen people on the trail. It was just really incredible. And I might throw in just a little bit of trivia so you can sound like an expert if people want to. If you Sometimes people say, well, they made a typo on the brochure or the map. They called it the Lower Yosemite Fall. I thought it was the falls. Well, I had to research it too, but according to expert, Yosemite Falls, plural, is North America's highest waterfalls, 2,425 feet high. It's really super, super impressive, but it's divided into three segments. There's the Upper Yosemite Fall, singular. There's the Middle Cascades and Lower Yosemite Fall, singular, but the whole thing is called Yosemite Falls, plural. And the explanation is that if a waterfall has multiple drops, it's plural, falls. If it's a single drop, then technically it's a fall. We say, I'm going to go see the waterfall. We don't say I'm going to go see the waterfall. So it's just one little piece of water. So there you are. There's the insider. You can sound like an expert and explain, yeah, no, that's not a misprint on the map. It is Lower Yosemite Fall. But a great thing that we found on that, whichever, whatever you want to call it, if you walk up the, and it's a paved, handicap accessible trail up to the base of the waterfall, so the lower 320 feet. This big. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? 
Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Tacker comes out and you can walk almost right to the base of it. In fact, when the when the waterfall is really roaring there in the spring or summer, if you're going to walk up close to the base, take your take at least a rain shell. You're going to get sprayed and get wet. But we found there's a wooden bridge right below the base of the lower fall. You walk out on that bridge, at least when we were there in April, early in the morning, the sun angle had an absolutely incredible rainbow right there and the, all the mist coming up where the water just crashing down into the creek. It was just magnificent. But if we had not got a little bit wet and walked out on the bridge, we would have missed it. And we saw several other groups that came up and they got to the bridge and said, oh, well, I don't want to get down. So they, were, they just turned around and went back to the parking lot. So finally, as we were leaving, we found people coming up and we just said, hey, here's a little tip. If you want to see something really cool, go ahead and get a little damp and walk out in the middle of that bridge. And it's really special. We can sometimes think of the national parks as places that don't really change because they're protected. But the appearance and experience of these places can change dramatically from one season to another. I asked if there were any major seasonal changes people should be aware of when planning a trip to Yosemite. Absolutely. And in fact, some people are caught off guard by that. The waterfalls all over that come off these high cliffs and fall down into the on the four Yosemite Valley are really spectacular and a big draw for people. And so some folks are disappointed if they get there late in this season. Depends on the year, how much snow and, and rain they've had. But you get into midsummer to late summer, those waterfalls basically dry up and they disappear. And because they depend on snow melt and a little bit of rainfall, but it's mainly melt from that year's winter snow. And so if seeing one of those, one or more of those magnificent waterfalls is really a big part of your agenda there, then you need to go spring or early summer or you're going to miss out. I mean, it's still a great place, I'm sure anyway, but we really enjoyed the waterfalls as part of the overall scene while we were there. That was a big plus for us. I first realized this fluctuation in the waterfalls when our audio engineer, Brent, mentioned that although he had been to Yosemite multiple times before, this was the first time he had seen them wet. I initially had no idea what he was talking about. I asked Jim if he had any favorite stories from his time at Yosemite. Yeah, one particularly deals with the trail, and I talked about a couple of trails, and there's a really famous trail there in the park. It's known as the John Muir Trail, M-U-I-R. John Muir was a famous... American naturalist who some people call him the father of Yosemite because he was really instrumental in promoting the area and developing enough interest where it became a national park. So the, the John Muir Trail is named for him. It's 211 miles long, starts in Yosemite Valley, and ends at Mount Whitney. That's the highest point in the contiguous United States. And if you take the free shuttle to stop for a place called Happy Isles, I-S-L-E-S. It's short for islands. It's in the Merced River. There's a trailhead there that's the starting point, mile post zero, so to speak, for the, for the John Muir Trail. And because it is such a famous trail based on my experience in other places, I suspect that some people may say, ah, I've heard of that. Why don't we go hike on the John Muir Trail? And so that brought to mind a story. I say, if you want to do that, just you can get off. You can walk the first hundred yards. You can tell people back home. Yeah, I, I hiked part of the John Muir Trail. You can let your conscience be your guide about how much far it was, but you can have the experience and say, I at least walked part of not hiking it. But the story is that because some people may see the name and 
perhaps be encouraged to go for a hike. We ran into a similar situation. My wife and I were in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Tennessee and North Carolina, and we were just on an easy, short-paved trail. And But that trail intersected with the Appalachian Trail. That's one of the iconic hiking trails in North America. And there's a so the this gravel path, the Appalachian Trail crosses this path we're on. And there's a sign there, a wooden sign that says, Appalachian Trail and a little arrow points in both directions. You see this path just pierce off in the woods. But as we came by, there were two teenage girls standing there and they were looking at that sign, kind of a quizzical expression. And one of the girls said, hey, Appalachian Trail, I've heard of that. Why don't we take it? And they kind of looked up and my wife and I were just approaching there. And I guess we looked fairly harmless. I mean, we were clear to the age of their grandparents. So one of them said, well, maybe these old folks know something about it. So one of them looked at us and said, Appalachian Trail, do you know anything about this trail? Is it a very long trail? And so I managed to keep a straight face. I think and I looked at her and I said, well, it's about 2,000 miles long. It runs from Georgia to Maine and it just happens to pass through here on the way. And there was this brief pause and the girl said, oh. So I, I was relieved because, I mean, they were wearing flip-flops and shorts and didn't have a, any kind of gear at all for even a even a half mile hike, much less anything serious. So I was relieved to see them I head back down to the parking lot and get in the car and hit them down the road. But if somebody is in Yosemite and they're looking at sign for the John Muir Trail and they might wonder if this is a very long trail, and the answer to that would be yes, 211 miles in that case. So again, information is helpful if you're going to decide to to take out on a hike. We didn't have kids with us. But I did wonder what amenities or activities were available for families with small children. And Yosemite has got some great things for kids to do. At that same spot that I mentioned, the, the trailhead for the John Muir Trail, there's several trails leave from that same spot. Very close to there is a place called the Happy Isles. Again, it's spelled I-S-L-E-S, Happy Isles Art and Nature Center. And it's a great place for kids. It's open usually from April through October, usually about nine to four or something like that. Just check the hours there. But it's a family-oriented space. They've got natural history exhibits and interactive displays and hands-on stuff and art workshops. And there's several very short, easy walks you can take from that area. So if you got kids, that's a great place for them to go and have something kind of on their level they can enjoy. And another thing you can do there in virtually any other national park in the country it's called the National Park Service's Free Junior Ranger Program. And it's designed really primarily for kids about age 4 to 12, but they're not going to check your ID if you have a youngster you want to sign up for it. You just go to the Nandy Visitor Center, you pick up a free little handbook, and it's got some activities that you can do as you go around the park. The kids can thumb through it. When you go to such and such a spot, you find something, you write down what you've seen or that kind of thing. And when you get it all filled in, you take it back to the visitor center and they'll give the, it varies. Some parks have a certificate, some parks have a badge. They have some kind of little award they give you. Some kids really just get caught up in this and pretty soon they've got a whole collection of patches and badges, but it's a really fun activity for them. You can sign up for this online. You can download the handbook online if you want to, but it's something if you have kids, I'd encourage you to really uh, take advantage of that and can beat the price, it's free. The major attraction at Yosemite, for most people, is the Yosemite Valley, and it is seriously breathtaking, but it's also increasingly crowded. I asked Jim if there was another good spot he recommended in the event that the valley was too full. 
Absolutely. One other final spot that I would say that you could, I would suggest try to work it into your Yosemite visit if you can. It's certainly not a secret. You won't be the only one there. It's called the Tunnel View Overlook because it's right next to a, a tunnel on the road there with this great paved overlook. It's got one of the probably the most famous viewpoints in the entire national park system. You're standing, you're looking down on the valley. You're looking across, you can see El Capitan and Half Dome and Bridalville Fall. And it is just an absolutely magnificent view. And again, it's seven miles from the valley. The shuttle buses do not go there. My suggestion would be if you've driven into the park, go there pretty much first thing if you get there early and then take your car down and get your parking place and hang on to it. If I had a parking place in the valley, I don't think I would vacate it at one o'clock in the afternoon in the summer to go up to the sea tunnel view because you probably won't find another parking spot. But if you could work it into your schedule, especially again, that's another, if you're camping there or have a place to stay overnight, get up and drive up there fairly early in the day before it gets busy. And it's also, I'm told, a favorite sunset spot. We were only there in the morning. I've not been there in the evening, so I might not want to wait till sunset to go there. But it's sure one that's worth a stop if you can work it into your schedule. I don't think you'd be disappointed. One other story that has been told a lot, I think, probably among the staff there and some other places, that it also has a really important lesson learned for everybody. The 911 center, I got this frantic phone call from a guy that they told him he'd had his car parked in a trailhead parking lot he came back and terrorists had blown up his car he said how do you know they said the guy said the windows all blown out there's this white powder all over everything he says send somebody out here quick so sure enough rangers headed out there didn't take them long to sort out that the that the mysterious white powder was flour and it was from a bag of flour that had been ripped open and is among a number of items of groceries that the guy had unwisely left inside the car while he left there overnight to go on his hike. And uh, what had happened was a bear had broken into the car after all that food and ripped all that stuff open and pretty much trashed the inside of the guy's car. And we have to feel badly for him. There's a lot of information out there. You get at the park and don't leave, don't leave anything that looks like food in your car. I just have to wonder in retrospect, what kind of reaction he got from the insurance company when he filed a claim on this thing. His car had been totally destroyed by a bear. But it is a real situation that people need to be aware of. There are hundreds of black bears in Yosemite. That's their native environment. And seeing one is a real thrill for people. Um, you don't see a lot of bears, because, particularly during the summer, because there's so much activity. But if you see one, it's great. But the flip side is bears are a challenge if people don't follow the rules because of the way they've worded on the park safety information bears are extremely food driven bears do just about anything to get the food and the problem is that human food becomes a real attraction for them it's not good for them they develop teeth problems they become unhealthy but bears like people they'd rather eat a snickers than they would a berry probably and so the challenge is you have to keep people food away from bears and vice versa and if you don't, the issue is that bears can become dangerous if they become so hooked basically on human food and they associate people with food, bears then sometimes have to be killed. And that's a shame. It's avoidable if all of us would just do the job. So the problem is that bears are really smart and they will quickly learn to recognize things they associate with food, such as a cooler, an ice chest. 
they will break into the car if they can see an ice chest, even if they don't smell food, because they've learned that usually there's goodies inside that ice chest. And they consider a lot of stuff that we would not think of as food is attraction to them. Soap, cosmetics, toothpaste, almost anything that has an odor to it. And I mean, a candy wrapper that has no candy attached has enough odor to attract a bear. And so the park has gone on a really aggressive campaign because this got to be a really huge problem. Back in 1998, there were 1,600 known incidents of bears damaging vehicles, breaking into them after food. I mean, 1,600. And that's just the ones that were reported at the park. Who knows how many more there were? So the park got really serious. This has got to stop. And so they got a real serious campaign going. So the incidents dropped from 1,600 in 1998 to 22 in 2018. I'd say that's really a remarkable, successful program. Now, to make it work, everybody's got to cooperate. And some people, of course, you have to use the stick instead of the carrot. So just if you're busy, you need to know that if you're there overnight, you absolutely positively cannot store anything that looks like, smells like, or might be associated with food to a bear. If you leave it in your vehicle and rangers discover that, you're going to get a ticket and your vehicle may get towed. But that's the trade-off of, of dropping bear damage to cars from 1,600 to 22 in a year. Everybody has to do their part. And that's part of it. If you look at the park website and you search for bears in food storage, there's detailed instructions there about the do's and don'ts. If you're in a campground or if you're in the tent cabins they rent there in the valley, they have food lockers. For every campsite, for every, it's a big, huge vault. Basically, you take all, you take your cooler, your food, your toothpaste, all that. You think it's going to be in traction to bear, stick it in the food locker and lock it up overnight and you're golden. If you're staying in a lodge, it's your responsibility to take that stuff out of your vehicle and take it in your room overnight. And people do that and it works and it's great, but you just need to be forewarned about how that works. And if people are think, oh, that's that's got to be exaggerated, it's not really that big a problem. There are some really impressive videos that you can look at online of YouTube videos about about bears destroying vehicles in Yosemite. It'll make a believer out of it. They can smash the glass. They can literally rip the door off a vehicle. They're tremendously strong and and motivated creatures when they're after food. So there's just a tip. Don't don't be a guy that the terrorist blew up your car because you left your your flour or your, your pancake mix inside the car and you'll have a great visit that way and the park will be happy you'll be happy and the bear can go back to eating blueberries instead of your stickers bar or whatever i reminded jim of a phrase for this phenomenon that i had heard him use before so that is and it's a fed bear is a dead bear that may be the one you're thinking about and that's just a reminder to all of us the bears are just amazing cool creatures to see out in the wild but we got to do our parts to keep them wild and you don't need to have your car destroyed, and we don't need to have a bear to be put away just because somebody's being careless about the about their food. So it's a program that's working, and we want to keep it working. And don't be one of the one of the 22 next year that didn't follow the rules and find a really unhappy ending to your vacation. You come back to the park lot and have a look at your car, or find that it's gone and it's in the impound lot because the rangers found your stickers bar laid on the dashboard. The day after our call about Yosemite, Jim called to offer an additional point of clarification on the rules about not having food in your car. 
one thing I did think about last night when I was talking about the the bears and the food storage and about not being able to don't leave stuff in your car. I think I mentioned, but I'm not sure. There's no legal requirement to get stuff out of your car during the daytime. It's only at night. So I didn't want people to think, well, gosh, I'm going for the day. I got my cooler in my car. It's only a nighttime requirement. The food can't be stored in your car at night. But I didn't want to create this information about that and have people panic. Well, gosh, I'm going to be all day touring the village. and I got my picnic basket in the car. What do I do? So it's a nighttime only situation. At the end of our first call, I asked if there was anything else he'd like to add. I just, I worked for the Park Service for 30 years and I knew Yosemite was a great place. And frankly, we never went. And two reasons. First, the only time we could get time off with our kids in school was during summer vacation. I just knew it was going to be just too crazy crowded and then that didn't appeal to me. So my wife and I finally went in April four years ago and, and it was a fantastic experience. So I, having been I regret now that we didn't go sooner, even to put up with the crowds. So I would say if the only time you can go is during the summer, I think I'm hoping that things are going to get better now with this new reservation system during the peak visiting season. But read up and get the information, see what you have to do to get a reservation. And if the summertime is the only time you can go, I say go for it. The pluses of the summer visit, you can get up into the high country, see some magnificent parts of the park that we could not Go because the roads weren't open yet. They were still snow covered up there. But if you can go other times you ago, but I would say it's on my must see list now, having been there. All we got to see there was Tunnel View Overlook in Yosemite Valley because again, everything else was still snowed in April. But even that made a believer out of me. It's, a, it's an absolutely great experience. So I'd say just uh, when you get a chance, go get information ahead of time. Just don't entice the bears to have a picnic in your car. And if you're going to take a hike, Just know whether or not it's a really long trail before you get started. At the end of each episode, after we've heard from Jim, I'd like to share a few fun facts or details from each park that I found particularly interesting. The more I hear and read about these parks, the more interesting they've become for me, and I hope that you feel the same. Earlier in the episode, Jim referred to the fact that some of the waterfalls of Yosemite dry up for certain times of the year. I want to add that there is a rare 10-minute window that occurs for two weeks during the year where the horsetail falls looks as if it's flowing with molten lava. This only happens during the last two weeks of February. Look it up sometime. It's spectacular. I also found it interesting that the Yosemite Valley was not included in the original park boundary in 1864. This means that El Capitan, Half Dome, and Yosemite Falls were all added to the park in 1890 when Yosemite became the fourth official national park after Yellowstone, Sequoia, and Mackinac Island, which was later demoted to state park status. Yosemite once bid to host the 1932 Winter Olympics. Fortunately, it lost the bid, and the park was spared the stress and also the ruins of an Olympic park complex. Whenever I travel, part of my research is just reading reviews. They can be unreliable, But there's always a possibility you might learn something, especially when large numbers of people are saying the same thing. I found a surprising number of one-star reviews for Yosemite, and almost all of them are saying the same thing. Reserve ahead of time, or you won't get in. And if you can't get into Yosemite, it becomes difficult to enjoy it. Some families traveled the country, thousands of miles, only to be turned away. One of these reviews, from Stephen H., says... Heads up, 
A reservation is required to enter the park during this time. We had no idea, and came all the way from Arizona only to be turned away. Super disappointed. Do your research and plan appropriately. Should have listened to Jim. Now that you have, I hope you'll benefit as much as we will on our next trip west. In the next episode, I'll be heading to Yellowstone, America's first official national park. <laughs>